0: Let's just talk to our God one more time and just spend time in his presence. Lord, I come before you. You know me, you know know the mess I I carry around. But Lord, I wanna be here in your presence today and Lord, you said where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there. So we know you are here now, Lord, and we invite you, we welcome you, and Lord, I pray that you will work on all of our hearts today. Um, help your voice to be heard, not mine. In in the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen. Amen. Okay. Let's see if I can sort this out. Okay. Who has heard of Henry II? Hands up. Oh, we've got some people there. Most of you know your failed history. Oh, my sons have got their hands up. Okay, if I give you his known name, Henry Plantagenet, who's heard of that? There's a few more hands. Okay, let's go by association. I will guarantee you most of you know two of his sons. One is Richard Cordillon or Richard the Lionheart and the other one, Prince John. Who's heard of those guys? Oh, come on, there's not many people out there. Okay, Henry II became king of England in 1153, Sorry, 1154. He built up during his reign and before his reign an empire that included most of Wales, parts of Ireland. As you can see in France, about a third or more of France was in his empire in all of England. He was kind of a big deal. He was very powerful and he had secured the succession because him and his wife had eight children seven of them that survived into adulthood now his oldest son was called Henry the Young and at the ripe old age of 15 or 16 Henry the Younger decided that the name Prince the title Prince was unbecoming of him I want to be king as well So, Henry II said, okay, we can be co-king. So, in 1170, his son, Henry the Young, became king as well. So, you had two kings reigning at the same time. But a couple of years later, 1173, Henry the Young realised that the title of king was not really what he wanted. A few lands were not what he wanted. He wanted the lot. So he instigated, with the help of many people that wanted to get hands on things, what was called the Great Revolt. And large parts of France um, revolted against Henry II. Um, Scotland invaded, trying to take land from Henry II. In fact, those two lovely, um, Richard the Lionheart, who was 16 at the time, he joined his brother and said, hey, I want my brother to be king, I wanna get rid of my father. And also the third son, Geoffrey, joined. So Henry II, he's king of this powerful empire. He's got all these sons. And guess what? Three out of his four sons basically want him dead. Now, do you think that's a good son? It's like, you've made me king, but I want more? Well, Jesus... Actually, I need to tell you... uh, Sorry, I should have shown you this. That's artist impression in the far left of Henry II... That lovely tapestry there in the middle, that's Henry the Young. Um, that's our impression of Richard the Lionhearted. Then on the horse is um, Prince John, who, strangely enough, was probably the best king out of a lot of them, um, even though Robin Hood says he was bad. Um, we got Magna Carta out of him. Um, now, he wasn't a good son. Jesus tells the story of another property owner who had two sons. He had an older and a younger son. And the story goes that there was a man who had two sons. The youngest one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, what do you know about this culture? Who generally gets the most, the young son or the old son? Old. So Primagentra, however you say that lovely word, to keep the family estates together, they generally gave the bulk to the oldest son and the rest If they were lucky, they got money to get married, um, maybe a horse. So the younger son says, I want my share of the inheritance right now. Now generally, when do you get your inheritance? When someone dies. Okay, so let's think about that there. What is this son saying to his father by saying, I want my inheritance now? I want you dead. Is that a nice son? He may not have been that, that hardcore. He may say, Hey, I'm not that interested in your dad. You don't do it for me much anymore. But I'm more interested in your property and your land. So what does the dad do? He divides his property between his sons and sends them off on his way. Um now, and this reminds me of, of a number of things. Have you heard the old saying, where there's a will, there's a way? Have you heard the saying, where there's a will, there's a hundred relatives? Um, This is very true in in my own family, not not my level, but my my dad's strata. They had um, a relative, an auntie that died in England back in the 60s, 70s, and she was the the last owner of a a large estate. So all this antique furniture, all manner of things got sent out. And funnily enough, the sibling who organised the shipment container managed to have significantly more of the antiques and all the prime pickings compared to the other siblings and guess what happened the family sort of fell apart a little bit two of the siblings didn't spend too much time with the other sibling where there's a will there's a hundred relatives this guy wanted his father's estate so let's ask the question again what is the boy saying to his dad pretty much want you dead or I'm not that interested in you. I want your stuff. Now, let's, let's think about it. What do you think the dad is feeling? Do you think he feels all warm and fuzzy? Oh, I've got a good son. Nah, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, boys, watch out. Don't you do this to me later on, eh? Otherwise, you have to answer to your mother. Um, okay, so the story goes on. Jesus tells the story. The guy goes off. He lives a pretty wild life. He loses everything. Luke 15 20 but um, the son eventually comes to his senses and comes back notice this but while he was a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him he ran to his son and he threw his arms around and kissed him now a couple of things jump out at me from this it says he saw his son a long way off what why do you think his father just happened to see his son my guess is he's been camping out there waiting for weeks and months maybe years hoping every day that his son will come walking across and he's been looking there longing to see that son of his the other thing you know he ran what do you know about this culture that culture back in time people that were property owners old and distinguished did they run No, it was unbecoming of someone. Chances are he had a long flowing robe, which signalled his status and also made it almost impossible for him to run. Now, interesting side note, nothing to do with the sermon, but you've heard of Joseph of uh, the multicoloured coat. We don't know what the actual word is. We know he got a coat. It's been assumed it's multicoloured. But if you um, hear what the the late David Down used to say on his opinion it was most likely a coat of long sleeves which was a signal like this that he was above common work he didn't have to work because he had long sleeves so in this culture if you're wealthy if you are distinguished you didn't run you didn't work and what does the father do he runs and is there any neighbors around he looks ridiculous doesn't he now, this story is a parable that Jesus told to give us an insight on in how much he loves us and what people can actually do to him at times. And there's a few Bible examples, and we won't go to in, in depth, but King Manasseh is a biblical example of, of this kind of story. Manasseh grew up with his father Hezekiah. His father was a good father, or he was a, he was a good man, Manasseh got rid of God. He started worshipping pagan idols. It says in Jerusalem that blood flowed in the streets. He became a really bad man and the whole city was influenced. He got to the point where he actually started sacrificing his children and human sacrifices to his pagan gods. He became a really bad man. Eventually it went the way it was meant, like all that kind of stuff always goes He found himself in a dungeon and he called out to God and guess what God did he said you deserve this no he took him back this child killer this mass murderer he probably even killed his if 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 you believe Jewish tradition his father-in-law who was Isaiah theoretically the the priest if the prophet if you believe Jewish tradition God took him back He accepted him back like the prodigal son. Now, there's another example. Have you guys heard of a guy called Peter? He's in an adjoining room and Jesus is being beaten and on trial and Peter says, I don't know that man. And Jesus could hear it. How do you think that made Jesus feel? One of his best friends that had spent three years with him in front of, in his hearing or off in the distance says, I don't even know the man. He's not my friend. I don't even know him. But Jesus took Peter back, didn't he? Totally undeserved. Now, what I want to do today, I want to explore, um, I want to step back and look at this from a different perspective. I've got to admit, when I've thought about the parable of the prodigal son in the past, I've grouped it for people that are off the rails a bit, you know, do you guys do the same thing? People that aren't really living the Christian life, wild living as the story says, um, and in the past I've sort of grouped this, this is not really relevant to me, Um, it's for those people or at times when maybe it has been relevant to me, I think about it, but most of the time it's like, no, it's not. It's for wild people that have totally walked away from God. I want to explore some different ideas. So let's see if we can see Bible principles where the key ideas of this parable can apply to groups of people. So first of all, groups of people. This here is a reconstruct or was, emphasis on was, this was a reconstructed gate of the city of Nineveh. Now would have been great to see this. It doesn't exist anymore because our, um, our friends in ISIS decided to blow this up because, well, they're haters. Nineveh, at one point in time, was the largest city in the world. At its peak during the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and it's sort of up northwest what we call Iraq, at its peak in the Northern Assyrian Empire, it grew to 120,000 people. Now, there's no trucks that can actually bring in food. There's no cars where people can get around. A city of 120,000 people in this era is amazing. It's massive. Okay? It's a big city. Now, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, it grew to the extent of all this green, so they conquered the Egyptian kingdom. Neo or new Assyrian Empire was considered the world's first great empire. All other empires sort of copied their, their, some of their techniques. Now, let's go for a show of hands. Sorry, I'm gonna see if, it, who thinks um, the Assyrian empire was a nice group of people? Hands up. Okay, hands up if you think the Assyrians were nasty people. Yes, we've got people alive and awake. Okay, so let's find out why they got this. They had such a bad rep. As part of policy, you know what they do, and apologies parents, Like, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but there's some bad stuff I'm going to mention. To punish people that would actually go against them, that didn't want to be conquered, when they conquered a city, they would get the leaders and they would flay them alive. Now if you know what that means, it's not nice if you don't, it means... Effectively, someone takes your skin off bit by bit and hangs it up in front of you while you're still alive. Now, this wasn't what soldiers that were out of control did. This was policy. In a lot of wars, women that were taken captive, they would not get nice treatment, but they wouldn't be killed. What did the Assyrians do out of policy? It was particularly bad if you were pregnant. When they were finished, you were no, no longer pregnant and you were still alive. I don't want to say any more. They perfected the art of impaling. And if you know what that is, that's good. So to put that in context, you you remember the story of um, Queen Esther and the evil Haman and he built this gallows that was the tallest. Well, we get the word gallows because the King James Version was written in a time in, in England where The predominant form of public execution was by hanging on a gallows. They didn't have the technology. They didn't know how to do it. He built a stand and there was a very sharp stick up there. And he was hung on it but not around by the neck. Very painful and people would be alive for days. So they would go into a city they'd conquered and they'd kill everyone if they fought back. Now, if you were on the good side of them and you decided to say, hey, we would love to become part of your empire, you know what they'd do? They'd take you from your native land and they'll ship you on the other side of the empire, mix everyone up so that you no longer had a local affiliation with your, where you grew up um, and you would hopefully aff- become affiliated with the Assyrian empire. Now, from history, we know, and it, you, all you have to look at is, at the end of World War One, what the Turks did to the Armenians, when you move hundreds of thousands or millions of people, pretty much all the young kids and all the old people die. So let me ask you a question. Is the Assyrian Empire a nice place? This is not soldiers out of control, this is policy. This is what they planned to do. And guess where they planned it? In the city of Nineveh, because that was one of their capitals. So God sends a message to a man, Jonah son of Amittai, go to the great city Nineveh and preach to them. Now, the northern kingdom had not been taken captive, but this guy, Jonah, knew how bad the Ninevites were. It was common knowledge. Um, Interesting side note, tell me if I'm doing too many tangents, interesting side note, um, 2 Kings, what is it, 1425 says that um, Jonah son of Amittai came from a town called Gath Haran, I think it is called, which is probably about five kilometres from a place that became Nazareth, up in the Galilee. Okay, so when in the New Testament you hear people saying, which prophet comes from Galilee? No one, no prophet ever comes from Galilee. Just sink in your mind, Jonah came from Galilee now Jonah did not want to go to these people why God had told him go and prophesy and warn the city of Nineveh what was Jonah doing now he got political are the Ninevites nice people a lot of people would probably say they deserve to die but when God tells you Go to a group of people, no matter how despicable. Does God want you to go to those people? Did they deserve a second chance? Probably not. But Jonah got political. Now, I just want to put it out there today. What what does it say in the New New, um, Testament church? There's neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. We are all members of God's church. Of God's people and everyone who's not even a member of God's church that doesn't know God is still made in the image of God. Do you understand that? So when you look down at someone because they look slightly different to you, that person is made in the image of God. And when you look down on someone because maybe they are affiliated like these guys with with a a different um, empire or different political party or maybe They don't go for the Broncos. Does anyone go for the Broncos at the moment? Um, Sorry, I've got to hang my head in shame. Parramatta lost two weeks in a row, it's like shameful. Um, If you look down on people for things that aren't significant, you are looking down on someone that is created in the image of God. Do you understand that? Every person you see, no matter what they've chosen in their life, was originally made in, in God's image even in this imperfect, sinful world. So what does Jonah do? He runs. There's something about a big fish, vomit, and eventually he turns up to Nineveh. Now, I just want to bring a quote, by the way. This is not from external sources. This is from engravings of um, King Ashurbanipal. Hopefully, any of you that speak Assyrian will correct me later if I pronounce that wrong. Um, what did he brag? I entered the city... It's, it's inhabitants I slaughtered like lambs. This is not just from external sources. This is from their own things. They killed everyone. Um, okay, let's get here. Jonah began, eventually he, after the, the fish, the vomit, the long walk, he began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Now I'm sort of thinking this guy really didn't want to go and you read the rest of the book of Jonah and I'm thinking he's going around in 40 more days you guys are going to be destroyed because I know what you do to pregnant women and I know what you do to cities you capture and I know what you've done to some of my friends. 39 more days you guys are going to die that the way God wants us to talk to people? But there's a warning to be given, isn't there? And they repented. There was a stay of execution. And was Jonah happy? When God saw that they did not know how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And then Jonah got really cut at him and said, but you promise you are going to kill them. And what does God say? Now, you tell me, can you see the prodigal father in this story? And should I not have concern for a great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also as many animals? Can you see that although this civilization has gone down a, a dark place and they inflict a lot of pain on people, God? was wanting to draw them back to him. God relented. Now eventually, there was a stay of execution. I don't know what God hadn't planned to destroy them, but eventually there was a stay of it. Um, Eventually it caught up with them. In 612 BC, actually somewhere between 611 and 613, we don't know the exact date, there was the Battle of Nineveh. Um, Two of their, their subservient populations were so annoyed they had enough babylonia and media united and they conquered um they went amongst a lot of battles and they destroyed the city of nineveh 750 um hectares of that city were razed, and everyone in them were just killed now this is an old city there's a lot of people living there eventually these guys they, god relented But eventually they went back to their ways and eventually um, they annoyed people so much that Babylon and media destroyed them. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think God cares about people in different civilizations to the one you live in, different different countries to the one we live in now? Yes or no? No. What about countries where no one believes in God or very few people believe in God? Do you think God cares about that that country? How about Australia, which is increasingly becoming secular and increasingly becoming atheist? Do you think God cares about Australia? Is God a nasty God that just wants to hurt people? I don't think so. The prodigal son story tells me what God is like. Civilizations eventually turn away from God and they almost get the just cause, because when you don't build your civilization, your country, your city on love, and there's exploitation, there's inflicting pain, eventually it goes down a dark place. Now, um, John 3:17, after the famous verse John 3:16, says, "God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him." God is not a tyrant that's looking for an excuse to kill people or to wipe people out. God is a loving father that is looking for an excuse to save you. doesn't matter what your background is, God is looking for an excuse to bring you close. Now let's look at some application in our, maybe in Australia where we live and in, in our communities. This is from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 22. Um, the people of this land practice extortion, commit robbery. They oppress the poor, the needy. They uh, mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. There's a whole series of paragraphs where Ezekiel's talking about this before. Basically, God's people were worshipping other gods. They were worshipping demons effectively and they were inflicting justice on other people. God wants us to worship him alone and he wants us to love people around us. And what does it say here? God says to Ezekiel, I looked for someone among them who would build up a wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. God is looking for people who will stand up, that have a relationship with him and will look for ways to draw their their country, their land, their city closer to him. Look for people who will stand up against injustice but not just not just um justice movements but justice with god as well there's a a difference between just pure social justice god wants people to be drawn to him as well god looks looks at australia and he's looking for people to stand up in the gap on behalf of australia i think this has application to us as well now let's go back to our father in the prodigal story does he want his son to come back yes has his son stuffed up has his son made bad choices in his life yes and his son has got the consequences of those but is the father still hanging out and looking to spend time with him again and looking for him to come back he is And the same thing goes for cities, for countries, for churches. God wants us to come back to him and God wants us to step in and stand up for people around us and care for people the same way that God does. Now, as I said before, um, I've always looked at the story of the prodigal son, um, traditionally, as it's for people that go off the rails a bit. It's not so much applied to me. Now, if if you're here or you're, you're watching this and you, you honestly can say to yourself, I'm actually, that's probably me. Do you know God wants to spend time with you? And if you're in a country, if you're in a civilization, and I honestly think our society is, it's not in a positive trajectory, it's, it's in a negative trajectory. If you're in a, in a city, in a country that is not, in a positive place at the moment do you think god wants to spend time with you and, and grow close to you yes let's look at another one though finally i um i think i try to spend i try to spend time with god every day now i'm not bragging here i'm just being honest okay so i try to spend time with god because i know it's important i know what god has done to me i've tried to make that a priority but do you know what i find some days I find, at the end of the day, I'm like, I haven't spent any quality time with God today. Can any of you relate to this? Now, this is my experience, and, and God's, in the last little while, God's really been putting that on my heart. There's days where I get to the end of it, and I'm like, you know what, I haven't spent as much quality time today with God, as I would like to but guess what I managed to find two hours to do that or I managed to do this thing all day long and I couldn't find any time to spend quality time with God do you think the story of the prodigal son applies to me as well do you think God at the end of that day is just longing for me to come and spend some time with him even though I've I've made choices where I haven't prioritised him? Do you think that's the case? So I want to say to you guys, the prodigal prodigal father is relevant if you feel you're, you're a long way away from God at the moment. God wants to spend time with you. The prodigal father is relevant to whole countries because God wants to spend time with individuals in those countries. And if you feel that, that you're in the space with God, but you do have times where, where you realise you're not prioritising time with God, God wants to spend time with you. Now, as we're almost finishing up, can I get us all, can we, can we say that together a couple of times as a church? God wants to spend time with me. So on the, on the count of three, can we do that? One, two, three. God wants to spend time with me. Do you believe that, guys? Let's say it again. One, two, three. God wants to spend time with me. He is hanging out to spend time with you. He's looking forward to spending time with you. Um, About a week ago, I was riding home. I'd left leaving work. like I cycle, and you probably wouldn't know by the look of me, but I do cycle almost 50 k's a day um, when I'm in the office. Now, I left it a bit late. It's getting dark now. Um, So I prefer to actually leave the, the office and be on my bicycle before it gets dark. And this day, it was... I didn't get to leave until after five, about five and then I had to call my sister whose birthday it was and funnily enough, the reception doesn't work in the change room so I couldn't go early and it's pitch black when I leave. And I'm riding home and there's this wind and I seem to remember there's a bit of rain. It was a pleasant ride home. But I had a bit of peace, it's, it's a nice ride. I'm like, eventually I got to the point where there's no cars trying to run me off the road. There's no cyclists around all those lovely scooter riders. And I start thinking, I am really, really looking forward to seeing my family. It's an hour-long ride, and I'm looking forward to seeing my boys and my wife. And it started to dawn on me, that's, you know what, that, I think that's how God feels about us. Every day... He is hanging out. He's looking forward to us to get home, to, to spend time with him. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I eventually got home. It was, I was cold. I was dark. It was dark. I opened the door and within 30 seconds... I had a three-year-old curly-head boy that come up and give me a hug. Two other boys that give me a hug and even my wife gave me a hug. God is at the door. He wants to spend time with you. He wants you to choose to spend some time and take time out with him. He's the prodigal father and... He wants us in his life. We're going to have our last song now, and so invite um, everyone to come up and play.